If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. If you just wave and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And and then please, if you don't own a Bible, God wants everyone to have a Bible. Take that Bible as a gift from him to you today. John's Gospel, Chapter 1. We'll pick things up in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Let's pray together. Lord, just as we have sung, O come, let us adore him. We come with that same heart to your word, and to the revelation found in it of our Savior this morning. We ask you freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit. Freshly work in our hearts and in our minds to be able to consider him, consider how blessed we are in him. All of the revelation that you have given of us of him in your word. We want all of it to impact us. We want to know all of it. We want all of it to impact our relationship with you and with him. And so we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit in our lives through your word this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Most often at Christmas time, I will teach a Christmas message on the Sunday immediately before Christmas and then um, a devotional to introduce uh, the Lord's Supper as a part of our uh, Christmas Eve uh, communion uh, service. And this year, as I was just kind of considering Christmas, I don't know, maybe I was just in a mood for a little more Christmas than normal in terms of teaching related to it. It's a funny season of the year, really. It's a wonderful time. I'm not a, um, a Grinch of any kind. But Christmas time is an f- interesting season. So certainly the birth of Jesus is worthy of celebration every day. And of course, for us as Christians, Every day is Easter and every day is Christmas, and it's our portion. It's a blessing. So we kind of live there all of the time. And then the Christmas season comes upon us, and um, for some of us, life is so busy, so full. I'm not talking about going out to Best Buys or Target or wherever to buy presents. Not even talking about kind of the expectations that the culture puts upon Christmas. It's just life is busy. And then you add the expectations of the culture that you're a failure as a parent or you're a failure as a son or a daughter, a failure here. If you don't live up to 80% of what the world throws on top of Christmas and it can have us all in kind of a frenzy and sometimes... Our lives can be already so full that Christmas comes and it goes and we hardly know that it happened. I never want that to really happen to me. And sometimes it, um, it can 
it can occur, or at least uh, a temptation for it to occur. So I'll find a place where I'll stream somewhere online into the house or whatever, or put on Christmas music so that I'm listening to these things. And, and I'm, you know, not, um, I'm not, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, but the kind of songs that we sang, I'm not, I don't have any trouble with, you know, the weather outside is frightful, you know, and all of those things. My favorite kind of secular Christmas song is those dogs barking jingle bells. And uh, now you can just go on YouTube and listen to it as often as you want. In the old days, you had to wait till they played it on the radio, which might be like twice a year, which was like a highlight for me. I still don't know how they could get those dogs to learn that song like that. Oh, don't ruin it for me. Don't explain it. And so I kind of sat this week, and we've got this little manger scene in our house. And it's not a fancy one, but I like it. It's got a little light in it. It's really modern. And, and there's Joseph and Mary, and there's the shepherds. There are the animals that are there. And the straw and all, and then, and then there's Jesus lying in the manger. And I just sat there this week, and I just looked at that little baby. And I know that it's not him, but I like visuals; they take me someplace. I said, Lord, I just want a fresh kind of revelation of Christmas in my heart here, and that Savior and all, and and all that's bound up in Him. And I felt like, you know, this Christmas season, for whatever reason, I thought, we'll give another extra week now to Christmas in terms of teaching related to it. And so that's what we're going to do here today. And, of course, the Sunday before Christmas, it's always an evangelistic sermon because Christmas is evangelistic. (laughs) It's all about a sinner's Savior. You can't help to have it be that. But I thought today we would just pull back a little bit before we get to that. And by the Holy Spirit, take a look at Jesus from maybe a little different angle and see what kind of wonder and appreciation that it produces within our hearts as we do so. This morning I want us to consider just three things, the who and the how, and the why of Jesus' incarnation, his birth into this world as a babe, God come in human flesh. Let's take a moment to consider the who of this Savior. Who exactly was this baby born into the world some 2,000 years ago? And in order to fully appreciate Jesus, we need to know where he comes from. It's wonderful to know all about his miracles. That's fabulous. It's important and wonderful to know all about his teaching. But we need to know more about his life than his miracles and his teaching, as important as those things are. We also need to know something about who he was and is and where he came from. And apparently we need to know it because the Holy Spirit puts it right in the book, the very verses that we've read. And in John chapter 1, verse 1, the Holy Spirit declares to us that Jesus was and is eternal. We're told that in the beginning was the Word. And we know from verse 14 that that's a reference to Jesus. The term Word refers to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit tells us that when the heavens and the earth were created as is recorded in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus already was, he already existed. In other words, before the beginning began, he already existed in eternity. Jesus was not created. 
Jesus did not begin existing at the moment of his conception as a miracle of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. He did not begin at the time of his birth in the city of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. You and I, we begin our existence at the moment of conception. Jesus did not. God tells us that his existence stretches all the way back into an infinite eternity. He never began. He never had a beginning. He has always been. Jesus is as eternal as the Father. And Jesus affirmed this truth concerning himself when he declared to the religious leaders of his day, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that before Abraham was, I am. And then later on he declared and confirmed the same truth concerning himself in his high priestly prayer that he prayed to the Father on the night before his crucifixion, recorded for us in John's Gospel, chapter 17. And Jesus prays to the Father and declares, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the church at Colossae of Jesus, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And John wants us to know that that is who was born into the world in the city of Bethlehem. Second, in verse 1 and 2, the Holy Spirit declares that Jesus was with God in verse 1. In verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. The word with that's used there is a very interesting word in the original language. It literally means face to face. And it's intended to communicate the closeness and the intimacy of the relationship between the Father and the Son shared in eternity. John wants us to know that. God wants us to know that. And it was this intimacy that both the Father and the Son were willing to sacrifice in some kind of a mystery-shrouded way and level in Jesus coming into this world in order to provide us with salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Now, to me, it may not be to you, we're all different, but to me, two of the most awesome and the most haunting cries of my Savior, of Jesus, in the course of his life and of his ministry were uttered in the light of the disruption of this eternal intimacy on some level between God the Father and Jesus his Son. Again, on the night before the cross, as Jesus prayed to the Father, he prayed and he said, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world was. And then while hanging on the cross itself, Jesus cried out, we're told in Matthew's gospel, about the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the Father and the Son never cease to be fully and inseparably one. But again, some indescribable something happened in that incarnation of Jesus in his birth into the world, taking on human flesh that had never happened before and will never happen again. And it happened for you. And it happened for me.
And it's humbling to realize. Notice too in verse 1, the Holy Spirit declares Jesus to be divine, to be God. He says, the Holy Spirit does, and the Word was God. Not only that Jesus was with God the Father, but that he is God, that he is divine. You can't make a stronger statement in all of the Bible than John chapter 1, verse 1, for the deity of Jesus Christ. It can't be stated any stronger than it is that he is God, that he is divine. As Paul would write, to the church at Colossae once again, for in him that is in Jesus dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. One of the most famous verses in the Old Testament declares the very same thing, that when the Messiah came into the world, he would be divine. He would be God in human flesh. Pastor David has already read that verse to us, but you'll allow me to read it Again to you in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. For unto us a child is born. That's Christmas from the vantage point of earth. And unto us a son is given. That's Christmas from the vantage point of heaven. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, and then here it is, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Not just a child, but a son, the very Son of God. Not just a child, but the child will be Mighty God. And so Jesus was, and so he is. And it was God in human flesh who was born into the world in Bethlehem and who ultimately died for our sins on the cross of Calvary. We're told further still by the Holy Spirit in verse 3 that Jesus, this Savior, that Jesus is the creator of all things. This tells us two things. Number one, that Jesus created all things. If something is made, he made it. And it also tells us that he cannot be created because if he created all things that are created, then he cannot be created. And the Bible teaches that God the Father created the world through the Son. Again, the book of Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things are created through him and for him. The writer of the book of Hebrews wrote, God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Everything that we can see through a microscope, everything that we can see through a telescope and beyond created by Jesus, everything that has ever been created, that we have discovered and know about, and what we don't yet know about, all of it created by Jesus. That's our Savior. That's the babe that was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, who was born into the world to become our Lord and our Savior and our friend. And then notice further still in verses 4 and 5 that the Holy Spirit declares that in him was life. And this verse, verse 4, it opens with a Greek preposition. Uh, in the Greek, it's E-N-N, which means in, as it's translated in our Bible. And it declares here, in essence, that he, Jesus, is the source of a spiritual life that cannot be found in anyone but him. Only he can give it because he's the only one who has it. 
Jesus is not one among many who can give spiritual life, can give, introduce people into a life that God has intended, a rich life, an abundant life, a God-intended life, an eternal life. Only Jesus can bring a person into that kind of life and into that kind of light because he alone is the source of that light and that life. And thus the Holy Spirit declares of him in First John chapter 5, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And it broke the heart of Jesus when men would not come to him that they might have life. And it breaks his heart. Yet today, Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day, and he said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life. He said, but these are they which testify of me, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. And the spiritual and the eternal life and the light that we enjoy every day as Christians is ours because of the birth of that baby. A relationship with God, the ability to talk to God any time, day or night, about anything, that kind of access to the throne of that kind of king. And it's ours. No matter how rich we are, how poor we are, or famous we are, or anonymous we are, or infamous we are, as Christians we have that access. The privilege of being led by the Holy Spirit, understanding the Bible under the direction of the Holy Spirit, receiving revelation from the Holy Spirit, all of these privileges that are ours, all of them that we have, that we grow so accustomed to only because of the birth of that baby into human history. And I'll tell you, once you have tasted of that life, and you've experienced the reality of that light and that life that that Savior brings to a human life, then you can't be satisfied by anything else in life. You can leave it. You can walk away from it. But you will never be satisfied in the way that that satisfies. And a person will never be satisfied in the way that we are satisfied as we walk with him and talk with him along life's narrow way. It's a wonderful thing that happens when we become a Christian. We become wonderfully spoiled and ruined to ever return to the old things, to a life of hopelessness, a life that is meaningless apart from God. Life has no meaning apart from God, apart from what we've been created for. Until we are engaged in the very thing that we've been created for, all of life will be empty and meaningless. And the Bible teaches that we were created for a relationship with God. And nothing in life will make sense until we are in that relationship. And then we become a part of that relationship. And now the world, it can lure, it can tempt, it can do all of its things. But we know in the back of our minds and in our heart and in our spirit, if I go back there, there will be no satisfaction for me there. I've been forever spoiled with this light and with this truth. Jesus, at the height of his popularity... The three and a half years of his public ministry, he performs a miracle. There's men and women and their families that have come out to listen to him teach. They've heard about his miracles and his power and 
and that he's a great teacher and speaker for God and the revelation that he teaches concerning God, they come and at the end of the day they don't have anything to eat really and he's got compassion on them. And so he performs a miracle and takes five loaves and two fishes and he feeds 5,000 men. We don't know how many women were there on top of it and how many children. And they ate and they ate and they ate of that bread and of that protein of that fish until the Bible says they were glutted, they were filled. The word is glutted, thanksgiving, dinner. They couldn't get one more piece of that bread or that fish down the old esophagus, into their belly, every one of them stuffed. And Jesus leaves them. And in their mind, they think, Social Security. This guy will feed us for life if we become his followers. So he's just like a patent vending machine in their minds. They've got such a small picture of him. So the next day they come in a crowd that numbers in the thousands and the thousands. But now they just want a meal. They're not there for the teaching. And Jesus understands it. And he begins to speak to them about what it will be necessary, what would be necessary of them in order to follow him in this world, in order to go where he goes in life, in order to do the things that he would do when he takes us to that place in life. And as he began to talk about the price that would be paid to follow him and the fallenness of this world, we're not in heaven yet. The crowd began to melt away. Can you imagine the Son of God Declaring truth to a multitude and people would dare to turn their back on him and walk away from being a part of that audience. Wow. But he let them. And as that crowd melted away, he turned to the disciples and he said, Will you go also? These are the conditions of following me in this world. This is what's required to be saved and to know God. This is the truth. There's no moving from the truth. Will you leave also? And as I've said many times before, I believe it's one of the most amazing pictures of vulnerability in all of life and in all of the scriptures. Here you have the very Son of God who makes himself willfully subject to the rejection of his creation. And Peter then speaks up for all of them. And he said to Jesus, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of everlasting life, and also we've come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter knew that what he had experienced in following Jesus, that he'd been forever ruined from ever being satisfied any place else in life. And the Holy Spirit tells us in verse 18, verse 14, that that is who was born into the world as a babe in Bethlehem, who in the words of of chapter, of verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. Why would he do it? Why would he come into the world as he did? Number one, that in verse 14, that we might behold his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No one brought a greater revelation of grace and truth into human history than Jesus did. And the second reason that he was born into the world, verse 18, was to declare the glory of the Father to us. And the point that the Holy Spirit is making is that is who left heaven 
took on a human body, a tabernacle, a tent to come here so that we might know what God is like and so that he could also provide a way of salvation for us. I've never been to heaven. I'm going to heaven. I have reservations that nobody can touch. How I get to heaven, that I don't know. That I get to heaven, that I know because of my faith in Christ. I have a preference for how I get into heaven, just like you do. I do like the rapture option a lot. But I've never been to heaven. One day, I'm going to go there. But this fallen world is all I have ever known. And all I will ever know of heaven and earth is what it will be like to leave earth and go to heaven. I will never, ever experience what Jesus did. And that is what it is like to leave heaven and to come to this earth. That is the much harder thing. To leave heaven and all of its glory, all of its sights, all of its sounds, all of its beauty, the intimacy with the Father, all of its purity, all of its holiness, and then to come into this world, to leave an environment that was so beautiful, so holy, so glorious, that it rendered even the most godly and most eloquent and spirit-filled of men speechless. And the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 6, he declared of just seeing a vision of heaven. said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. At but a vision of heaven, the prophet Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone. The Apostle Paul saw heaven, and 14 years later he was still trying to figure out how to put it in the words without marring it. And he still found he couldn't do it. And he wrote in 2 Corinthians, I know a man, speaking of himself in Christ, who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or whether out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and he heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for a man to utter. And the apostle John himself, the one who was the youngest of all of the apostles, who seemed to have the most intimate relationship with Jesus in his uh, earthly ministry, one day when he is given this vision of heaven, we don't know whether he saw it as a vision or whether he was literally taken there by the Holy Spirit, but he's introduced into the heavenly scene, Revelation chapter 1, and he sees Jesus in his eternal glory in the context of heaven, and this John who would lean his head upon the breast of Jesus while they ate during Jesus' public ministry, when he sees him in his eternal glory, he said, I fell down at his feet as dead. 
And each one, when confronted with that great gulf that exists between heaven and this fallen world, it left them undone, it left them speechless, it left them as dead. And in the light of who and what he is, I am humbled and I am awed at how low he was willing to stoop to even come into this world, let alone to come into it, to die for our sins. The Apostle Paul shared that same awe as he wrote to the church at Philippi, speaking of Jesus, he said, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. It is only after taking a moment to consider the amazing sacrifice of Jesus in even being born into this world, that he then goes on to the second cause for awe in the very next verse where he writes, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul wrote to the Corinthians again, and he said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. For us to fully know and to appreciate a person, we have to know something about where they came from. And here the Holy Spirit tells us where he came from to heighten our appreciation for that Savior. The relationship only becomes truly deep when we know something about where that other person has come from in life. You meet someone at work. You meet them at school. You meet them playing at some intramural sports or bowling or whatever. And you meet that person in a moment in time. And you know who they are and what they are at that moment forward. And you have a certain level of relationship with them. You know a certain something about them. But when that person then chooses to reveal to you something of their life, something of where they've been and where they've come from, something of their history, now you understand them and you appreciate them like never before. And now the relationship reaches a depth that it would never otherwise know. We can never fully appreciate our relationship with Jesus without knowing something about his history and where he came from to come into this world in order to save us. And I think about how humbling it is to realize what he was willing to do. I'll tell you, it makes us love him all the more. And the Holy Spirit knew we would. And so concerning the who of Christmas, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that as the Son of God and God the Son, that's who came into this world from eternity past, from the indescribable glory of heaven in order to provide us with salvation. Now, second concerning the word how, how Jesus got here. And I want to put some of you at ease. The last two points are uh, brief, the one in these seizures. Concerning the how, how Jesus got here, how he came into the world, 
The circumstances of Jesus' birth are probably most fully given to us in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, especially chapter 2. We're told that he was born into this world. You see, how else would he come into the world? Lots of different ways. But Luke tells us that he was born into this world. He also tells us there that we're, we're told that he was born into this world through a virgin named Mary. We're told that he was born into this world in a city named Bethlehem. We're told that Joseph and Mary were each of the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. That's the whole reason that they were in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth was because of that bloodline. And thus Jesus was to be born of that bloodline as a miracle from Mary. And I, th- I think to myself, why knowing what we know of Jesus' eternal glory, why knowing that this is who he was from eternity before he ever came into the world, why was he born into a world through a virgin in the city of Bethlehem of the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and King David, as opposed to descending, as we might think, from heaven in a fiery chariot and some kind of a fireworks show. For the simple reason that this is exactly how God declared that Messiah would come into the world through the Old Testament prophets. Through the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, God had declared, For unto us a child is born. He won't come into human history. All of the Jews, every believer in the book, everyone was waiting for a Savior. God had promised one from Genesis chapter 3. How will he come into the world? Will it be by a fiery chariot? Will it be some kind of a UFO or whatever? No. He's going to come into the world. But he's going to be born into the world. God declared that when Messiah was born, he'd be born of a virgin. Right there in Genesis chapter 3 where God is addressing the devil following the fall of Adam and Eve in that garden of Eden. And the Lord spoke to the devil and said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Wait a second. Women don't bring seed to the reproductive process. They bring the egg. What's God talking about her seed? A virgin birth. A virgin birth. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Isaiah prophesied, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And through Micah the prophet, God had declared that the Messiah would be born into the city of Bethlehem, just as he was. And God declared that when Messiah came into the world, he would indeed be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and also of King David, just as Jesus was. Why did God do it that way? There are a lot of reasons. You could take a month of Sundays telling all the reasons But we'll content ourselves with just one this morning. The reason I think that has the greatest practical effect upon us as Christians. God did it this way. As a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. So that each of us would recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of those prophecies. And so that each of us then would put our faith in him on the basis of the surest most unchanging thing in the world, and that is the Word of God and how shakable, unshakable our faith is in Jesus because it is based upon the unchanging Word of God. Now, finally, let's consider the why of Christmas. Why was he born into the world? In order to provide each of us with a Savior from our sin. Matthew brings it out the most clearly in his gospel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. 
the angel of the Lord spoke to Joseph and said, And she, that is Mary, will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The name Jesus means Jehovah's salvation. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His name is his mission. He came to save us from our sins. And Jesus is a sinner's Savior. And aren't you glad about that? And this Christmas, as Christians, here we sit, saved and forgiven, on our way to heaven, enjoying the most amazing relationship a person can be engaged in, a relationship with God, with a Savior who is willing to die for us. So much to be thankful for, so much to rejoice in. And may our thoughts this Christmas season, every time you see a manger between now and Christmas, every time you hear one of those songs that speak of him, like the songs that we've sung here this morning in this Christmas season, may you just be reminded of him, where he came from, what he was willing to do and to become in order to be your Savior. And just whisper to yourself, that's my Savior. That's my Savior. And I am blessed. It's a funny thing that happens after you walk with the Lord for a while. The most amazing truths we can become dull to. So you walk with the Lord for five years, for 10 years, for 20 years, for 30 years. And then we think we know something of the Christmas season. We know about Bethlehem. We know about Nazareth. We know about the journey. We know Mary was eight months pregnant. We know about the decree by Caesar Augustus. We know about the shepherds. We know about the angel crying out to the shepherds in the field. We know, we know, we know, we know, we know. And somewhere along the way, we lose our awe and we lose our sense of wonder. Not just related to the cross, but at his willingness to come into this world at all. And where he came from in order to do that. And as we think about that, then this season will never lose its awe and its sense of wonder. It will always remain fresh, just as the Holy Spirit wants it to inside of our hearts. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, say, what would Jesus say to me? Easiest question in the world. He would say to you what he said in what is the most famous verse in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world, that's you, that he gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus, that whosoever, that's you again, would believe or trust in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front here immediately after our service who would love to answer your questions and pray with you to receive that Savior, that salvation. The only thing that makes sense of this life and the only thing that takes us into the right side of eternity 
and that is heaven when this life is done. And it will be done one day for all of us. A funny thing, God sits here, each one of us in this room, just like that crowd 2,000 years ago. He still lets people, while he's speaking, while he's inviting, while he's calling on men and women to come and follow him and become a part of his family. He never puts a single person in a headlock. He gives the invitation and he gives you the opportunity to either accept the invitation or to turn on your heel, turn your back to the Son of God himself and walk out mid-sentence from what the Holy Spirit is trying to say to you day and night to bring you to Him. Amazing vulnerability. It's the most important decision you will make in life because the effect of that decision will outlive this life and go and, and be a part of your eternal future. So you want to make the right decision. You want to make him your savior today. These men and women would love to pray with you for that. Jesus is the reason for the season. Yes, we love it. We understand what everybody's saying. But he's more than the reason for the season. He's the reason for everything. Nothing makes sense apart from that savior. Because we've been created for that relationship. You come up front after the service and these men and women will lead you in a prayer to begin that relationship today. I'd like the worship team to come out right now. We'll close our service a little bit differently this morning. And all I want, I want you to remain seated. That's going to be weird for you. Some people, they get, wait a second, hold on. We always stand right here. Just relax. A couple deep breaths. I just want us to close with a song. A song of just that we would sing to the Lord. It's in line with what we've looked at today. And the Lord would just receive it as a prayer from us and also receive as a prayer anything that this song produces in our heart by way of awe and appreciation and thanksgiving directed toward Him.